be seated, church. Man, what a song to sing. Amen. God in His justice, in His perfection, is satisfied to look on Jesus and pardon us. Come on, church. That doesn't get you excited. I don't know what can get you excited. Our God has made a way I don't know, right? Like, maybe I'm just you guys. <laughs> that is, that is wild. Wild. But Jesus would trade his holiness for mine. What a God. Beloved, today we're in Acts. We're going to be in Acts 17 if you want to go ahead and turn there. I am excited to get into this text. But before we get in there, I just want to take a minute to acknowledge that's right. Is that better? There it is. See, I can hear myself, so. <laughs> oh, man. Um, before we jump into Acts 17 is where we're going to be today, if you want to go ahead and turn there. Before we get into it, I do want to take a quick second of knowledge. This last week, you know, we as, as a country observed Veterans Day, and I just, I would be remiss if I didn't take a minute just to say thank you to the people in our church who have served our country in the armed forces, and to the immediate family of those who have served. If that's you, I know some of you, I, I don't know everybody, but, and if that's you, thank you so much. Thank you for just modeling a life of valuing others above yourself and serving others. You know, th- there's something in here, right, about considering others before yourself. That, that is a Jesus kind of love. And so uh, if that's you, thank you so much. Thank you for your service. Let me pray a prayer, prayer of blessing over you and your family, and then we'll continue on. Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you for your gospel. Thank you for the amazing truth that you have, have looked upon us and, and seen the holiness of your son. What, a, what an amazing gospel. Thank you for the gift of this church, this family, this community we live in. But God, we want to take a special minute today, Lord, and, and thank you for those in our midst who've chosen a life of service, who chose to serve our community, our country, our people, the armed forces and their immediate family who joined in that sacrifice with them. God, we want to pray your specific blessing over them. Even today, Lord, we know that service is a heavy burden to bear and that it carries with it often burdens and scars that continue for years. And so, Lord, we pray your special grace, your special blessing, your special joy over those people and their families today. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this space. Amen. All right. Acts 17, we're continuing our series. We're picking up today in the middle of Paul's second missionary journey. If you were here last week, we jumped into this when Paul visited Thessalonica and Berea. Today, we're going to be looking at one of the most famous scenes in Acts. This is one of the texts in Acts that gets often quoted, especially, by the way, if you are at all in ministry, if you go to church planning training, pastoral training, evangelism training, like this is a text that will come up. Paul in Athens and his ministry in Athens. I'm excited to get into this. As we get there, I want to give us a quick little image here. Most of you guys know this, but I served in student ministry for a little more than a decade before I worked with grown-ups. And I have to say, in general, teenagers are better people. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry if that's hard for you to hear, but it's true. You just need to acknowledge it. They're less grouchy than you. And look, I'm, I'm with you. They're less grouchy than me also, okay? Put myself in this category. But it's what it is. 
So, so I, am, I am within my own tribe when I poke fun at youth pastors. And the reason is because youth pastors, if you've ever known one, are the strangest people on planet Earth. They're very weird. And, and most of the ways they're made fun of are completely and totally deserved. And the main one is this. If the stereotype of the youth pastor is some guy in his late 20s, early 30s, hanging out with high school kids, desperately trying to look like he still knows what is cool. You, you know what I'm saying? In fact, there's actually a meme about this. I don't know if you guys are meme people, but you should be. There's a meme about this called Youth Pastor Voice. And, and the, joke is, the joke is that the youth pastor will take whatever is currently cool that the kids are talking about and try and turn it into a Bible lesson. So I've got, I think I've got one. Yeah. The idea of the youth pastor, and you're going, what is, what is this reference? I don't get it. And if you don't get it, listen, that just means you're over 30 and it's okay. This is a video game reference to a game called Among Us. And the idea of the youth pastor standing there and going, you know who else walks among us? The Holy Spirit. Welcome to youth group. This is a, this is a, a joke that is well-deserved amongst youth pastors. I had this experience in real life when I was about 30. It was when I was transitioning out of student ministry, and I was still going and hanging out with the kids on Wednesdays, but I was really moving towards adult ministry at that point. And I went, and other people were leading the youth group, but I would still go and serve and help. And so I showed up, our youth group met in a house, I showed up and I'm hanging out, some kids are sitting at a table playing uh, Uno or something silly, and I'm sitting there with them and we're talking, and I made a passing reference to a, a pop star, I literally don't even remember who, but some musician who was well known, and a high school girl looked me dead in the eye and just says, so is this what trying to stay relevant in your 30s looks like? And I died a little on the inside. <laughs> So anyway, I take back what I said about teenagers being better people. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but here's the reason I make this joke. It's, it's, it's funny, right? It is funny to make fun of someone trying to stay cool, <laughs> trying to stay, stay young when they are not young and they're not cool. That, that is a funny thing. But it's connected to this idea of, man, this, a youth pastor, a youth worker, a college pastor trying to think through what are the ways that we best contextualize the gospel message to our audience. If you're hanging out with high schoolers, if you're hanging out with middle schoolers, if you're hanging out with college kids, and your role in that space is to present the gospel to them, then you want to present it in a way that they're actually going to hear, they're actually going to engage. This is the same mindset as when we send a missionary to another country and they learn the culture and learn the fashion and dress in the right way and speak the right language, right? Except that it's just funny because it's a 30-year-old pretending they understand pop culture references. But that is actually exactly what we're talking about today. What does it mean to actually contextualize the gospel? Because we just sang these songs, and I'm pretty confident that all of us can yes and amen the proclamation of the gospel that we hear and sing in those songs, right? I mean, our God is good to us. He's made a way for us from death to life. He, he looks upon the holiness of his son, and because of his sacrifice on the cross, says, I will view you through the lens of the sacrifice of your son and not through the lens of your sin. That is great news. That means forgiveness. That means eternal life. That means you and I, in spite of who we are and how we live, we get to be holy before our God. Come on. What amazing good news. And yet... The text tells us that amazing good news will not change the human heart if they don't hear it and believe it. 
right? How can they believe if they don't hear? How can they hear if no one is sent? So the people in our world around us, our friends, our neighbors, our children, our nephews, our whoever, they have to hear and believe that message if it's going to be good news for them too. The idea of making the message engageable, not not changing the message, but making it making it engageable, put, putting it as making it as accessible as possible, right? That's a beautiful and important thing. And the reality is, we don't want to do that so poorly that we end up a meme, right? Because it's too important for that. And I think God's going to grab us with some of that this morning. So. Acts chapter 17, if you want to read with me, we're going to start in verse 16. It says this, Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Now, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And so they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you were presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet... He is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of men, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all us by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked and others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysus the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. And this, beloved, is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father God, we ask you this morning to be our discipler. We ask you to do the work we just read about, to take your gospel, to take your word, and contextualize it for us. God, open our hearts, open our ears, open our minds, soften us, that we might hear from you, convict us, 
where we need to be poked and prodded. And God, let us leave this space having heard clearly from you today. We love you, Jesus. We trust you. So pray these things in your name. Amen. So here's what I'd like for us to do today. I'm going to walk back through this story. There's a lot here. We have a narrative. We also have one of Paul's sermons here. There's a whole lot of historical and contextual pieces that I just want to make sure we're on the same page before we really dig into what's going on here. But I think when we get right down to it, the message of this text is pretty simple. And it's just this. The gospel is too important for us to not do the necessary work to share it correctly. I'm going to say that again. The gospel of Jesus is too important for us to ignore the necessary work of sharing it rightly. What we're going to see in this text as we dig into it is that just as Jesus was gracious enough to us to reveal himself, to contextualize his gospel message to our hearts and lives, we are being called to do the same. Just like Paul, we're called to show up in spaces that need the gospel, to do the work of contextualizing the gospel message, making it, not changing it, but making it as accessible as possible, and to do so from a perspective of love and respect rather than judgment. And we're going to end our time. We're going to get into one of Paul's teachings in 1 Corinthians. And then we're just going to celebrate. Because we all need to be poked and prodded to share the gospel and and to be more like Jesus and how we engage our faith. But when it gets down to it at the end of the day, we're here because we have the grace of Jesus. So we're going to end by celebrating communion and worshiping our good God. Sound like a plan? Rock and roll. So, in this text, remember, we're jumping into Paul's second missionary journey. I think I have a map of that they can pop up. And hopefully you're kind of, I know this is weird. I'm a little more of a visual learner. So stuff like this is helpful for me to come back to it over and over. I'm going to say this each week. You likely have a map similar to this in the back of your Bible. I would encourage you to reference this as you're studying this on your own as we're going through it. But Paul and Silas and Timothy are making their way through Paul's second missionary journey. They started in Antioch on the far right of the map here. They made their way north and then west via land across what was then called Galatia, Asia Minor, and those places, what we call Turkey. They made their way across the Aegean Sea into what they called Macedonia, what we call Greece, and they've been working their way down the Greek coast, going from city to city sharing the gospel. As they made their way in, we've had really cool, important scenes where the gospel was shared and the church was planted in a city called Philippi, where the gospel was shared and the church was planted in a city called Thessalonica, where the gospel was shared and the church was planted in a city called Berea. Now, as often happens on Paul's missionary journeys, things get wild. When you show up in a place and you preach the gospel, uh, there are those who are opposed to the message. We can all, we've all experienced that a little bit, right? Like the gospel is the scent of life to those who are being saved, but it is the stench of death to those who are not. It is offensive. It, it rubs people the wrong way. And what we see is as Paul travels to these cities and shares the gospel, the Holy Spirit shows up in power and people are saved and churches are planted, but other people get angry and raise up mobs and try to kill him. And this is pretty much how it goes. 
If things get bad, he gets arrested. They get beat up. And this all kind of comes together at the scene in Thessalonica and Berea where the people from Thessalonica are so angry about Paul's message, what they believe to be a heretical distortion of the Scripture because they're not willing to actually study it. They raise up a group of people from Thessalonica and Berea to get a riot going to try and kill these guys. And the church has to sneak them out in the middle of the night. In the midst of this, Paul and Silas and Timothy get separated. Paul gets loaded up on a boat and sent far down the Greek coast. And the story picks up when they essentially drop him off at Athens and say, I guess we'll go find Silas and Timothy and send them to you. Thanks for not dying and thanks for starting our church. Bye. It's wild. Our scene picks up with Paul alone now, separated from his group, hundreds of miles away from his closest friend and the person he knows, sitting in one of the largest, oldest, most established cities in the Roman Empire. Now, we've talked about this a couple times, but these old Greek cities are given this special status in the Roman Empire, these free cities, and and Athens is the Greekest of the Greek cities, the, the most, like, the exemplar of exactly what we're talking about. This is an ancient center of culture, commerce, education, theology, all of the above. Athens is a large city. It's a big one. And by the way, Paul is not intimidated getting dropped off here by himself. I think this is a really cool thing. He's not some country hick. He grew up in Tarsus, right? He is Saul of Tarsus, and Tarsus was the largest city in the Roman Empire outside of Rome itself. He grew up in the big city, and he was educated in Jerusalem, another large city. Both of those cities were five to 600,000 people in the metroplex. And so when he shows up at Athens, that's a roughly the same size, four or 500,000 people by himself, he's actually in a place where he goes, I know how to do this. This is probably way more familiar to him than most of the places he's been up to this point like traveling through these more, these more uh, uh, rural cities and rural communities in Galatia and things like that. So he starts making his way through Athens. Now, if you know anything about ancient Athens, which by the way, you probably do, this is one of the ones that gets like covered in your middle school geography class because it's an important place, right? It is a cultural center. And the thing you have to remember about the Greek and thus the Roman worldview is that it was actually a very integrated worldview. See, we miss this as modern Westerners because we love to compartmentalize our understanding of the world. We divide our communities up. We have our financial district. We have our residential districts. We separate areas of study and thought. Here's where I go to study theology. Here's where I go to study business. Here's where I go to study medicine those sorts of things. But for the Greeks, their worldview was much more interconnected. And so for a place to be a cultural hotspot or an economic hotspot meant pretty much intrinsically that it had all the rest of it too. So Athens is full of some of the largest temples in all of the Roman Empire. The largest temple to Athena was divided into three distinct structures, most of which actually still exist today was in Athens. The largest temple to Zeus in the entire world was in Athens. It was called the the Temple of the Mount of the Olympian, and about a third of it is still there. It's still to this day the largest Greek-style columns ever built are part of this temple that's in this city. 
Beyond that, it was full of literally thousands of shrines and idols set throughout the entire community. It had one of the largest schools of philosophy where education was taught. Medical science was advanced there. A lot of business happened in Athens. This was a city with a lot of weight behind it in terms of how it was influencing the world around it. And when Paul is traveling through this city, the text tells us that he becomes uncomfortable. His spirit is disturbed within him. I think this is what's so cool about this. Paul knows big cities. But the big cities he knows are Tarsus and Jerusalem. These cities that are actually deeply Jewish. Athens is about as pagan of a city as you can have. I mean, it has the the world's largest temple to Zeus, right? Like, it has the original temples to Athena. It has idols and shrines on every corner. And the text tells us this disturbs Paul. Makes him incredibly uncomfortable. The way this stuff is all interconnected with the marketplace and with the schools and with the science place. Like, it's, it's very disconcerting for him. Which, by the way, that is true. You know, not to the same extent, but I got to experience a little bit of this. When, when I went to visit Mumbai and some ministries we were partnering with several years ago, Jesse's been there, he knows what I'm talking about. If you travel through a city in India where there's a lot of Hindu influence, there's a lot of similarities here where there are literal shrines and temples and idols sitting around on street corners. I have a picture here of one of them, I think. This was when I was taking a walk uh, just literally on the sidewalk next to the apartment we were staying, walked by this particular Hindu shrine, and I have like 45 more pictures of these because everywhere you'd go, whether you got into a taxi or walked into a grocery store or walked down an aisle, there would be actual shrines, actual temples, literal physical idols sitting up with people offering prayers or incense or sacrifices. And it's very disconcerting. It's uncomfortable to sit here and go, ugh, right? Like that is, it's not good. It's not, not real, and anything that is real, and that is not anything you want to be messing with, right? Like, it's very disconcerting. But look at Paul's response. Paul's response to being left alone in a big city, in a context where he's very uncomfortable, is to just go, well, time to get to work. And he does exactly what he does. He tells us that he starts preaching the gospel in the synagogue and in the marketplace. He just hypes up the work that much more and that much more quickly. He immediately gets to exactly what he's been doing in every context he's been in up to this point. He finds the Jewish population. He goes there and preaches the gospel. Then he wanders into the marketplace and just preaches the gospel to literally anyone that will listen. Grabbing a hold of the Gentile audience, probably standing within a few feet of various pagan idols and shrines as he proclaims the gospel to this, the people of this city. Now this opens up a strange opportunity for him. Paul meets some Stoic and some Epicurean philosophers. Remember, one of the largest schools of philosophy in the world is housed in Athens at this point. And so it makes sense that there would essentially be grad students wandering around wasting their time because it's a college town, right? And so this, these Stoic and Epicurean philosophers come up and start conversing with Paul. Now, if you know a little bit about ancient philosophy, it's a little wild that these guys are hanging out, and it's really only in a place like Athens where this would happen. You see, Epicurean philosophy and Stoic philosophy were diametrically opposed to one another. 
Stoic philosophy taught essentially a form of pantheism, that the spirit of the divine moves through anything and everything, including yourself, and the best way to connect to it was through a life of virtue and self-control. That by denying yourself unnecessary pleasures and extreme emotional experiences, you could learn to be a disciplined, controlled person who became more in tune with kind of the larger spiritual and physical reality. This is where we get the term, we say that person's acting stoic. What we mean by that is they're acting like a Vulcan, which really is what they did. They, they sought to suppress emotive experiences and things like that. The Epicureans were pretty much the opposite. They taught that the point of life was to experience as much comfort as possible. It's actually a hedonistic philosophy. They just believed that the most comfort and joy and good life could be achieved by being a morally and ethically good person and doing what is right. They actually held a strange form of what we would call deism, where they believed in the Greek pantheon, but believed that those, those beings were completely and totally separated from the physical world within which we live and had no care or concern for what we do, did, or thought. And really, all that matters is how you live and how moral or virtuous of a person you are. I, I, I state both these things because there's, there's a lot of differences between these philosophies. These guys debated each other. They fought against each other in the political sphere, in the educational sphere, and all those different things. But if there's anything in the world that could unify Stoic and Epicurean philosophers, it's actually this, an inherent dislike of the message of the gospel. I know it's wild to say that, but this is actually a real challenge the early church dealt with. Because these were the two dominant philosophical worldviews of the day. There were a couple others. But by the way, the couple others would all agree with this. All of them, every philosophical worldview within the Greek system, no matter how divergent they were on other things, did be like, believed amongst themselves that the idea of an afterlife was foolish. But the idea of an eternal being was incredibly nonsensical. You were given the life you were given, you were expected to use it as well as you could based on your understanding of philosophy. And when you died, you died and it was over, lights out. So when the Christian message comes along and says, actually, God designed you for eternity. He actually designed you to live forever. And he, he showed this and proved this by raising Jesus from the dead. That was laughable to the Roman sensibility, to the Greek sensibility. So these guys hear Paul teaching, and, and, and of all the things in the world to bring some Stoics and Epicureans together, it's the audacity of the gospel message. And it tells us, right, there's mixed thoughts and reviews where people kind of wrestle with what they think about this, but they escalate it and they go, we should bring this to our authorities. And so they take Paul to the Areopagus. Now this is, a, I think I have a picture of it, by the way. This is a place built into the geography of the city of Athens. On the, on the top of one of these hills, you can see kind of back in the corner there, where one of Athena's uh, temples is, on the road leading up to that hill, they had built out this large courtyard area, and this was the place where the ruling council of Athens met to decide legal matters. Now, what they actually worked on together, again, because they had a pretty unified worldview, is kind of strange to us to think of the ruling council, but meeting on these sorts of things, but they met and convened and judged on things as varying as murder cases 
and stolen olive trees and theological disagreements. Like they, they had pretty broad-ranging authority into the life in Athens. And Paul is brought before this group of people, the Areopagus. And he's essentially said, hey, you've been teaching some weird stuff. We like weird stuff. Tell us what your deal is. Like, tell us your teaching. And so Paul is given this open opportunity to present the gospel, not just in the synagogue, not just in the marketplace, not just to some grad students, but to the rulers of Athens. And so he jumps straight into it. And in this sermon, we get one of the most beautifully clear pictures of how Paul contextualizes the gospel for a totally Gentile audience. And it's a really gorgeous message. See, he starts with the thing that made him most uncomfortable. He actually starts with their pagan idolatry and says, you guys are really religious. And I actually, I actually think there's some beauty in that. Because you guys think about this stuff. You guys are aware of the spiritual realm and the importance of transcendent truth. I, I know you care about that because I, as I was looking around your city, I saw that you had altars to unknown gods, like just in case. Like just in case there's one we haven't figured out yet, we want to make sure there's space to honor them also. Hey, listen, I'm here to tell you about the God you don't know. And he's the real God. He's the creator. He made all things. He made you. And then, I, this is brilliant. It's brilliant. He uses that open door to then critique what's wrong with their idolatry. Because God made you in his image, because God is transcendent, you know that he doesn't need temples or idols or statues because that's human stuff. So you know there's something missing from your spiritual expression. In fact, your own philosophers artists and theologians agree with me. And then he quotes two lines, one from a Roman philosophical essay about theology and one from a popular piece of poetry. He says, in him we live and move and have our being. And indeed we are his offspring, saying, you know you're, you're connected to divinity. Talking about the Imago Dei, right? And what you have in your spiritual expression falls short. So let me tell you about the real thing. Your God made you for connection with him. And he, look, he's let all this stuff go for now, but now the call is that you need to repent because his son Jesus is coming back. He rose from the dead, he's coming back, and when he comes back, he'll judge. And you need to repent and be saved by him. It's a powerful message, right? But the minute he gets to the resurrection part, the same thing happens. Oh, this is one of those weird, this makes no sense. This guy's a yahoo, blah, blah, blah. And most of the people turn off, shut down, disconnect. Some of the people are like, no, this is interesting. I want to hear more about this. And just a couple people actually engage it and believe. And it goes out of its way to tell us that one of the members of the Areopagus themselves, one of the actual people on the ruling council, believes the gospel and becomes a part of the first church to be planted in Athens, which is... So powerful. So, what do we do with a story like this? What is the actual, like, what do we do with this? It's a cool story, right? We can sit here and look at how Paul was in this uncomfortable position, but he was obedient and looked like God used it and it bore fruit. But what, what does that, like, how does that come home to us? I would say this, guys. The first way this should come home to us 
is this. We can see how Paul worked against his own discomfort, worked against his unfortunate circumstances, and did the hard work of presenting the gospel to the people that were in front of him. And doing so in a way that was as accessible as possible to a people that, if we're honest, could care less about the message. You see, when, when Paul walked into a synagogue to preach the gospel, he was walking into a room of people who'd been trained their entire life to look for a Messiah. And his message was, I have met the Messiah. There's an inherent level of interest there. And that all he has to do is show them that he's right. But when he walked into these kinds of settings, these people are not just content. They think their worldview and their philosophical understanding and their religious view is superior. They're not looking for anything to be added to it. And when he presents his message, it sounds foolish to them. He's coming into a hard circumstance, and he does the work to make the gospel as accessible as possible. And before we talk about anything else, we have to talk about the truth that that is your testimony. That Jesus himself worked to make sure the gospel message came to you in a way you could comprehend. The unknowable God of the universe came to earth and was found in human form and poured himself out on your behalf. And that he spoke through his people, through his church, to you at some point. I guarantee if you're in this space and you're in Christ, your testimony is that God spoke to you the gospel through people who were faithfully sharing it. Because that's how it happened. Whether you grew up in church and you heard it from your pastor every week and you heard it in Sunday school and you heard it from your parents or whether you met Christ in your 40s because you heard a radio show or someone came up and talked to you in public, your testimony, if you're in Christ, is that Jesus did the work through his spirit, through his person, through his church to contextualize the gospel to you, to create a scenario where you could reach out and say, yes, Lord, this is what I want. What a gift. What a God we serve. He did that for you and for me. That is my story, right? I can think of specific moments in my faith journey, specific people who shared the gospel at different times. I can, man, I'm thinking specifically of Trey and Eric and how God used them to grab a hold of a young, rebellious teenage guy who could care less about church world and just present the gospel in a way that, man, felt like it was actually for me felt like it actually made sense to me. felt like it actually was in my world. And by the way, I could easily make fun of those guys for being the stereotypical youth pastor. And yet God worked through it. That's a gift, man. And that's all of us. That's our story. God did that work for us. Praise be to Jesus. And if we sit and reflect on it more, we'll realize that he did that work for us through the faithful ministry of brothers and sisters in Christ. Parents, pastors, friends, youth pastors, Sunday school teachers, neighbors, people who chose to share the gospel with us. How can they believe if they don't hear? You heard, because someone said it. That's amazing. That's what we see Paul doing here. Saying yes to Jesus. Whatever circumstance he found himself in, saying yes to Jesus. Yes, Lord, I will go and I will share. And stepping into whatever circumstance was in front of him and faithfully sharing. Guys, I think we see 
three specific things in Paul's ministry here, in Paul's ministry specifically in Athens, that I think are necessary and hopefully challenging for us as we consider what it means to join with Jesus, to be that voice of helping share the gospel and make it hearable to people. I think there's three things we see in Paul. The first one is this, and if you're the kind of person who takes notes, I would encourage you to write these things down. Paul showed up. And I know that's like a simple thing to say, but I think that's really important. See, Paul just got rushed out of a city where a riot was threatening to kill him, and he's separated from his actual companions in a place he's never been before. He would have every right to go find a hotel room and bunker down for a month until his friends show up. Right? I mean, honestly, would any of us begrudge him if he just went home? And ran, went back to Antioch and was like, that was wild. It was cool we got to plant three churches. But right at the end there, someone almost killed me. But he didn't. He got to the city. He found himself there. And he just said, okay, roll up the sleeves. Let's get work done. And he did exactly what he always did. He went to the synagogue and he preached. He went to the marketplace and he preached. He showed up. And look what happened in his showing up. He just happens to meet a couple of grad student philosophers who have relationship and access with the ruling council of the city. What a strange coincidence. But seriously, he shows up and God uses it. And a couple paragraphs later, he's proclaiming the gospel to the ruling council of Athens. Some of the most learned and influential men in this entire region of the world because he showed up. He said yes to the circumstances that were in front of him, and he took the gospel with him. And think about the, the diversity of those contexts within which he showed up. He went to church and preached the gospel there. He went into the marketplace and preached the gospel to the masses, to the everyman. And then he walked into Areopagus and preached the gospel to the most learned, influential, powerful people in the area. Pretty diverse set of audiences and yet Paul showed up for each of them. That's powerful. And honestly, guys, if we hear nothing else this morning, can we hear that? You have the Spirit of God in you, and He puts you in context. He's going to put you in context later today and put you in context tomorrow. You're going to get up and go to the gym or go to work or take a walk or do whatever you do. So show up. Show up with the gospel. See what God can do with that. And then he did the work of contextualizing. I love this. I love how different Paul's sermon to the Areopagus is to his sermon in Thessalonica or Berea, where he's reasoning from the scriptures and going to texts like Isaiah 23 and trying to prove that Christ is the Messiah. No, no, here he starts with what we call natural theology. How can God be known through nature, through creation? And then he taps into different aspects of their own spiritual worldview, grabbing a hold of the idolatry and the temples and using that as a way to point to the fact that they're already spiritually minded. And then grabbing a hold of quotes from popular media, from famous pop poets, and from known theologians or philosophers, where he knows this content well enough to have it on tap to use as he explains the gospel in that context. Which, by the way, he hadn't made plans to go to the Areopagus. 
Some guy showed up and said, let me introduce you to some friends. And next thing he he knows, he's there. And when he's there, he has the message. And he speaks it to them on their terms. And here's what I love most about that. It only kind of works. Did you see that? I mean, look at this, this brilliant thing, this constructed, thoughtful, like, let me take the gospel and make it as accessible to you as possible, and let me use your own media and your own culture, and most of the people are like, yeah, you're nuts, dude. And just a couple people actually receive the message. And yet, and yet, hear this. That's amazing. A couple people hear the message. A member of the ruling council with that authority, that education, that worldview, that background comes to know Christ in part because Paul did the hard work of contextualizing, of preparing, of being ready to share the gospel in a unique context. Man. And guys, don't mishear me on this. What we're looking at in Paul's ministry here is a ton of work. The fact that he was able to do that means he has studied the text and he knows the message of the gospel so inside and out that when he engages a worldview different than his own, he can analyze the worldview and go, okay, here's the parts that will connect with the gospel message. Here's the parts that will disconnect. So I'll start my teaching here and I'll move through there. That's work. But Paul had done that work. And the Spirit honored it, not with some massive, huge, flashy revival, but with faithful fruit born from good work. When you show up and you do the work, very rarely will you immediately get a Pentecost moment. Very rarely. But man, when you show up and do the work, it does bear fruit. Real fruit human souls, people made in the image of God, precious to him, beloved by him, who will be in eternity with us because of the work of Jesus and because of your partnership with him. Come on, church. And this is, this is the last thing. I think this is so important. He did this work of contextualization from a place of honor and respect, not judgment. And I think this is probably the hardest piece for us. The text tells us that when Paul got to Athens, He was incredibly uncomfortable, disturbed in his spirit because of what he saw, what he experienced. That idolatry was was not good. (laughs) It wasn't something that, that, that he was like, oh, cool, here's my end to share the gospel. No, 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 no. He saw it and was like, oh, this is dishonoring to God and demonic and evil and ugh. And yet, and yet, That was his open door to sharing the gospel. And rather than starting, leading out with the things that were wrong or evil with their worldview, he started with the points of connection and unity. You see that? He started by honoring what was actually good in their worldview, in their culture. I see that you're very religious. I see that you care about truth. I see that you care about the spiritual realm. Let me teach you about that. Guys, that is hard to do. And then to go and reference the media and and to know their poets, their philosophers, 
and to be able to look for things, points of agreement, areas of unity as jumping points to actually share the gospel? Because that's not just hard to do, that's painful to do. Because we're not talking about ancient Rome. We're not talking about you going out into your work and looking at the brass idols they have set up at the front door that you're supposed to kiss before you go to your cubicle. That's not the context we live in. The worldview that we engage with our family, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, our gym buddies, all of the above, is just as far from God, except it is distasteful and painful to us. When we engage our friends who have really strong opinions about LGBTQ plus ethics or sexual ethics or, or politics, heaven forbid, or economics, or race, or justice. Fill in the blank. All sorts of ways that the, the, the secular worldview in our context diverges from the gospel worldview, correct? And many of them are painful, distasteful, and offensive for us to engage. Things about the sanctity of human life and how that works out are painful to engage. And yet look what's actually modeled to us. Approaching the people around us with love and honor before judgment. Come on. We all know, we all know that Jesus met us where we were at. That it was his kindness that led us to repentance. We all know that that Jesus met us in the midst of our muck and our mire and our sin and our awful and our wrong, and he offered grace and love. And that's what helped open our hearts and our minds to the gospel. Amen? How can we do less? How can we do less? A challenge, like I, th- I think this is worthy of us considering as a challenge. I hope, as we're talking about this, the faces and names are popping in your head and you're thinking about conversations you've had, whether it's the coworker or the family member or whoever who just knows what they can say to push your buttons and rile you up, knows the issue they can say that'll be offensive to you, and just, man, what an opportunity you have to show up with the gospel, to show up with grace, to show up with the actual message of Jesus, which is what their heart actually needs. I'm going to close this with this text from Paul's letter to the Corinthians. He's visiting Corinth next, a very similar context. And later when he wrote to that church, he was talking about his ministry and he described it like this. This is in 1 Corinthians 9. For though I am free from everyone, I've made myself a servant that I might win more. To the Jews, I behave as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I become as one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I become as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I become weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Beloved, all things to all people 
that by always some might come to know Christ. Here's what I'm offering you. It's a bad deal. Show up and be brave and push aside your own offenses and your own sensibilities and do the hard work of understanding the people around you, presenting the gospel in a way that is loving, respectful, gracious, and engageable for them. And it won't work very well. But it'll work a little bit. That's the offer in front of you. It sounds like a bad offer. But here's the beauty. Some will be saved. And they will get to share with you in the blessings of the gospel. Amen? I'm going to ask the band to come up here and I'm going to pray. And I want to ask you guys to do something really specific. We're going to sing the song and after it's done, we're going to take the communion. We're going to celebrate how good Jesus has been to us and how much his grace has benefited us. And I just want to ask you guys, before, I mean, if you want to get up and sing the song and all those things, do that. before you do that, before we get to the moment of communion, even as they're singing the song, I want you to take a minute and talk to Jesus about this. I want you to ask him to put faces and names in your mind, if he hasn't already. To ask him where it is that you need to show up. See what he says to that. See what pops in your head. Just converse with him about that. Once you have that conversation, you feel like you've worked through that with Jesus, man, join us and sing the song and we'll take communion and celebrate how, God, how good God has been to us. Amen? Pray with me, church. Jesus, you are amazing. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your gospel. God, you've been so good to us. You went to such lengths to chase after me. Thank you. Jesus, we want to join with you in that work. Move in our hearts. Move in our hearts that we might do that. We love you, Jesus. Amen.